No more moral victories, Drancer. This was a victory victory. That trip was going in the absolute wrong direction. Second end of back-to-backs after their certainly worst performance in the trip. And here we are. Happy days are here again. The Canucks with a big win over the Washington Capitals. And Elias Pettersson with the big breakthrough performance. Didn't really want to talk about it post-game, did he? No, he didn't. I mean, I asked him the question right out of the gate. And, and you know, he talked about the team to start with and, and really didn't want to get into himself. Later on, he did admit to the fact that, yeah, it hasn't been going well for him, right? But he knows what he's capable of doing. But he knows what he's capable of doing. He barely admitted to that fact. Yeah, but, you know, in fairness to him, he's admitted it all the way along. Like, whenever we get our bi-weekly availability with Elias Pettersson, <laughs> yeah. right, which doesn't happen often for all those VIPs who think it's the media. Like, we, we don't get to talk to him. We don't get to make be hard on him. So it, it's easy for him. This is the time to be going through a slump if you're a superstar and you're not living up to a contract. But, uh, you know, in fairness, whenever he has come, he knows what the questions are. And he knows that we're going to ask it, and he doesn't hide from it. I mean, he doesn't get deep into the weeds on the details as to why things are going wrong uh, and to whether or not he's got you know a lack of confidence or whether the wrist is bugging him or whatever. But he does admit that the season hasn't been the way he wanted it to be so far um, and did that again. But bottom line is, not only did he produce, but he produced in ways that he needs to produce. Number one, his shots went on net, four for four, four attempts, four on goal. The goal was a nifty little bit of patience and then just a ripper off the post and in, so he gets a bounce for a change. And then the bank shot, which he's tried a few times before, even when things going weren't going well, tries it again, and this time he works, or it works. So, you know, confident moves, puck luck, and, and just doing the things he needs to, like the simple things, and keep get the puck on net. First of all, on the media being too hard on Elias Pettersson, I did hear that some reporter named Tom Dancer was very, very, was very, very harsh on Pettersson, mostly because of his love of strawberry and elderflower ice cream, which which he wrote isn't even a flavor. Um, so, you know, <laughs> I think uh, I think we have to we have to just note that that Dancer. Um, you know, famously chasing Artemi Panarin out of town, right? Uh, I mean, he's been harsh on Pedersen, but but I think the rest of us haven't been, to be totally honest with you. Pedersen, though, right? So he answers your questions, right, after the game. And I think it's important to note this because he scores that goal and it was vintage PD, right? Like, I mean, it wasn't bro, do your deeks, but the deke around the defenseman who overcommitted to the front, right? Uh, just a laser pinpoint shot, right? The release on it torques him to the ground, right? Like it was just a perfect shot, a beautiful goal. And it's not like he got up and did, you know, was it Steve Young who did the monkey off his back, right? Like it wasn't the, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't like he had this huge relief type celebration, right? He just kind of went about his business. And then of course gave the Canucks their first lead of the road trip a few minutes later. It, it was businesslike. And so he comes to the podium and he gives you the answers that he gives you. And then iMac tries with a couple questions, right? And I thought he was pretty petulant. I thought he was dismissive, right? The idea like that the question is framed to him like, did you think yeah, you'd never score again, right? And he wasn't going to have that, right? He, I know what I'm capable of. And then, you know, the mental struggle, right? And, oh, are all the questions going to be like this? Um. It wasn't to me, I don't want to underplay the extent to which I'm sure he was relieved, because I know he was, but the way that he was so cautious about feeding the beast in this market, right? It's like the answers sounded to me like the answers of a player who knows that one two-goal game doesn't put this behind him, right? Like he knows he needs to do this again and then again. And then again, enough that this isn't a talking point, right? He, he wants to shut us up, not, not with what he says, but by performing to a level where everyone's like, hey, remember when Pedersen had a really bad three months? Like, that was weird, right? Like, he wants that. And, and I thought that was pretty clear in, in the way he addressed it, which, which I actually thought gave us a ton of insight, if not a ton of good copy with which to work. What about um, the notion of him being freed by playing on the left side. Now that line looked really good all game with he and Miller 
and Besser. And we've seen the lotto line just reconfigured, and now Miller's in the middle. So, you know, I mean, and at some yeah. point, Petey's going to play center again. But what about this works? Is it simply not having the defensive responsibility of playing center, which Miller's obviously equipped to do, or is there more to it? I think it's just the change. You know, that's honestly my opinion. Like, the thing about guys I like on the wall is I like guys who play fast and win battles on the wall. If you're going to play a more ponderous game, you know, which I think Pedersen does really well, I like I like you to be in the middle. It's I like, you know, I know right now Miller's at center. I like him better on the wing. Right now Petey's on the wing. I like him better at center. But I don't think you can argue with the results of these last three games. No, for sure. And, I mean, if you look at the expected goals for rate, Pedersen is at 70%, five on five, since the move to the wing. And that's against Tampa Bay, Carolina, and Washington. Like, pretty decent competition there. And he destroyed, like, the Canucks, in the minutes that Pedersen has played the wing, the Canucks destroyed the opposition with Pedersen at left wing. And he's got the puck on his stick a lot more at left wing than he ever did at center in the first 30 games of the season. Sure, but I I don't know how much of that is uh, form or, or what have you, because usually a center carries the puck more. In fact making sure Pedersen was fed as a player who excelled with the puck on his stick was a big part of the thinking in moving him to center originally when in his rookie season. Yeah, right? but there's like, times when he's exiting the zone with the puck. Like, I just sense a player who wants the puck more than he did when he was at, at that, center. That, you know what I mean? That's what I'm saying. I don't know that it was... I don't know that the, it's about positional fit. I just think trying something different helped. Like, I think he was just a guy who needed... He, who needed a changeup. And so right they now, changed coaches, though, and the Canucks got a bump from it, but Pedersen kind of didn't, right? Like, Pedersen was kind of the exception to the Boudreaux bump. In fact, his first nine games while the team was playing really well under Boudreaux might have been Pedersen's worst nine games of the season, right? Yep. And so I just think he needed something different, and I think the wing helped unlock it. But Across the board, Farhan, right? Like, he's drawn two penalties, five on five in the last three games. That's always a good proxy for me with Pedersen for how involved he is, for how active he is, for how inside he is. Uh, his shot rate's way up. His shot attempt rate's way up. He's a, He's got the highest individual expected goals of any Canucks player um, at five on five since, since the move to the wing. And he's up by, like, almost a factor of... Uh, of sixty of thirty three percent over the next closest Canuck, which is JT Miller, who's been goose egg on this road trip at five on five. Um, you know, it's uh but it's played well. So it's um it's worked. It's worked, it's helped get him going to some extent, but I don't think the wing is his long term place. I think you need him at center. It's just that I think he needed something different and, and I think now that he's going, I don't think you mess with it until circumstance dictates you've gotta. Yeah, I mean, the roster certainly has been built with him at center. That said, you know, and look, you and I aren't here to to, to dance on Travis Green's grave here, right? Because, I mean, we were, we were both uh, of the mindset that he's a good coach and that he's going to resurface again and be a good coach. But all that said, I don't think Green would ever think to attempt that move. And that's not a shot. It's just that when you're in it for as long as you're in it and you're part of the roster construction, you just view him one way. I think it took somebody different to view the position he played in Sweden. Like it was almost outside the box thinking to move Pedersen to the wing. I, I don't know that Green would have ever attempted that. Not because, you know, he's philosophically opposed to it. I just don't know that it would have just registered because you just view him as a center after having had him for that many years. Yeah, maybe. I, I You know, Pedersen apparently asked to do it, right? Yeah. A super, would he, uh, according to Boudreaux's formulation. I don't think he would have with Travis. No, maybe because not. Because you're used to thinking one way. Well, and, and yeah, I mean, may, may, maybe that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, look, they needed to try everything at this point to get yeah, Pedersen going. And I think, that's, I think that's a key part of Boudreaux's mandate, right? I mean, you don't bring in, like, the guy who gets the most out of stars if you don't hope that he can get more out of your struggling franchise cornerstone, right? And so, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's the task at hand. And it was sort of the one area where the Canucks hadn't got a significant bounce in Boudreaux's first nine games. Um, now they have. Now they have. And and we'll see. We'll see if it lasts. We'll see where it goes. We'll see how long Pedersen stays on the wing. But uh, the early returns are more than good. They're scintillating. 
and the goal that the two goal breakout game that he had in Washington, like that was coming, right? He hits the post on what would have been a, a, a massive response shift in Carolina. I thought he played well despite the team's struggles overall. Um, against Tampa Bay, I thought that line with Garland before he entered the protocol was phenomenal. Um, you know, I thought they were uh, in- inevitable, right? That line felt inevitable in their first game together, and they were. They have been. Um, Pedersen on the wing right now feels like a consistently lethal option for this team and, and one that helps them drive play in a way that they haven't had enough lines doing to this point in the season. So, yeah, I mean, roll with it until until you until you need to stop, I think, or until it stops working. But in the first three games, even though it took the th- it took the third till the third game for the results to show the bottom line to be there. Um, it's been great. So let's uh, let's talk about the full team. I mean, just the the complete effort, and not to get overly cliche with it, but how surprised were you? And and Washington was also on the second end of back to backs, but the first three games of this trip were not going well. You could debate the games in Florida; they played well and didn't get a result. The third game uh, against Carolina, they were just not good at all. And then you follow that up with a back to back performance with your goaltender doing the rare situation where he's playing. Both ends of a back-to-back, given that Halak's now in protocol as well uh, as Garland. Um, what did you make of the overall group effort? Really good. I thought they played really well. I thought they dominated Washington. Like, they were the better team all evening, or all afternoon anyway. Um, I thought that was one of their best performances of the season, to be totally honest with you. I thought they were unlucky not to win it by a, a clearer margin than they did. Um no, that was a great performance. Like, I thought that was a great performance. And yeah, Washington also was without John Carlson and TJ Oshie, right? Some pretty important players for them. But, you know, aside from the penalty kill, which, you know, I, I've, I've expected that issues would resurface there. We've talked about it a lot. Um, they have. They're going to continue, right? But, you know, five on five power play, I thought the, the you know, in goal, Demko had a bounce back performance, right? Um, to the to the extent that the Canucks looked like the best version of themselves on Sunday, they managed it, and they managed it in challenging circumstances. Played really well, and and sort of have given themselves a shot now against Nashville to salvage this trip uh, to to a pretty significant extent. If you come back from this road trip with four points, I mean, we're going to say that's a massive win, right? I sort of I sort of had three points as my barometer for for a decent road trip. Uh, you get four. I think that's you know nothing short of phenomenal, right? Like that keeps your fire burning. Like that keeps the hope alive to to a large extent as the Canucks come home and face you know four really really important games against the Blues, the Panthers, the Jets, and the Oilers. Yeah, let's uh, before we get to the Nashville game, let's talk a bit more about Demko and. You know, for me, I didn't think he was playing poorly. Uh, he just wasn't necessarily playing out of his mind, right? And and I asked it in those terms to Boudreau, and he kind of conceded that, yeah, you know, you get a goaltender who um, is playing out of his mind, and then even when he's doing okay, you think he's playing badly, and, he, and he's not, right? And he talked about Demko's mental toughness coming in when on uh, Saturday he wasn't expecting to play. He did a hard one-hour practice beforehand, and then all of a sudden, Halak goes in protocol because he was supposed to be the the starter in game one of the doubleheader. And, um, you know, he's got to play and then he plays both games. So what did you make of of Demko's performance in that game after an unusual 36 hours to prepare and get ready for two games? Yeah, Demko's, for me, Demko's played well. And like the numbers say that the Canucks have had 9-10 goaltending at five on five on this road trip, which isn't great. But Considering the quality of the opponent, considering the quality of the chances the Canucks have surrendered, um, for me, Demko's been ex- like he's continued to be excellent. I don't think there's a single goal against that I would, you know, put on him on this road trip. I don't know what more you can ask for. And then against the Capitals, you know, he had some really significant saves off of Alex Ovechkin. To Except maintain the one that the went literally lead. through him, like I think it hit his kidney along the way. <laughs> yeah, I know, incredible. Um, so, I mean, I think he's looked big. I think he's looked calm. I think he's played well. I mean, he's Demko. He's no, but really, he just, really he, good. He hasn't been as ridiculous as he was earlier. No, but uh, you can't expect that. Like, no, you can't. 100%. You know, he was he was a 950 goaltender during the, the 8-0-1 run. And, 
you're not going to be a 950 goaltender forever. Like the best goalies in the league are 930 guys over the course of a full season. Nine no, but it's, guys. It's, the, it's the one area, right? Like as good as he's been, the club's collective form has been better. However, where Demko has made the biggest difference is on the penalty kill. Like during the nine game right. stretch where he's made the yeah, biggest he had difference. a 92 save percentage on the penalty kill. And that's also not going to last. Yeah, no, yeah, no question. But he was also eight fifty. That's but an elite he was, save percentage he, on the PK. But he was also in the seven hundreds under Travis Green on the PK. He was. He was below eight hundred. Yeah, J- just like seven eighty. So yeah. yeah, I mean, but there's a level between that that I think is sort of his real level. But if you need, you know, if you need eight fifty goaltending or nine hundred goaltending to have a good PK, you don't have a good PK. Because <laughs> no one can do that forever. You know, like if you no, need if you need your goaltender to be God's representative to goaltending on earth, you know, embodied, personified, uh, made real, then then you suck. Like then you suck. If you religious need religious references win, you suck. on the podcast, Danielle's got to write that down for the promo. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. Like, you know, the idea that the idea that Demko's, you know, if Demko, the idea that Demko has to be at this ridiculous level um to be true demko isn't true like there's a level beneath that that is like probably true talent and true talent might be something like 918 right like he's a 916 goaltender something like that for his career right he's not a 950 goaltender for his career you know there's there's a you know anyway i think i think expectations on thatcher demko have gotten a little bit out of control and that's something he's earned through being tremendous like through being just a really, really good puck stopper. But it's also something we need to be mindful of in analyzing this team. Like for his NHL career, he's a nine twelve goaltender. If he's a nine fifty guy over a nine game stretch or a nine eighty guy over a three game stretch in the bubble, you know, the the idea that like of bubble Demko or the idea of 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 March twenty twenty one Demko or the idea of December and January twenty twenty one twenty two Demko, you know. that's not who he really is he's the guy he is over a larger sample which is still amazing it's probably an above average starter in this league it's probably on the fringes of being a top 10 goaltender in this league um it's being a guy who's capable of extended stretches of being of like dialed in dominance but to expect that all the time you know i mean he's not he's not dominic hashik plus reincarnated like that's not who he is and that's not fair to expect from him and and you need to be able to divorce how the team performs from how the team can perform when they're feasting because Demko's you know shooting fireballs uh for a month and a half uh some bad news for the Canucks over the last couple of games they lost Yarrow Halak um you know and that's got some ramifications as well given his contractual status and where the Canucks may view themselves closer to the deadline. Uh, and you've also got Connor Garland, who had been one of the best Canucks this season to this point, and um, COVID protocol. Now, first and foremost, let's hope they don't have the same communication error they did with Brock Besser and are able to get him back in the fold fairly quickly here, uh, as opposed to doing what, what Besser had to go through and, uh, to a lesser degree, Phil Giuseppe and a couple of the others. But, uh, you know, certainly a tough news, tough news. But this is now something that every team in the league has got to expect on a regular basis to be without one or two of their guys. Yeah. Well, and especially on long road trips, right? Like there's a level of proximity that you have while traveling as a group on the bus, on the plane, right? Like teams are finding around the league that the longer road trips go, the more difficult it becomes to manage your roster from a viral perspective. And that's what's happening to the Canucks with, with Garland. You know, sometimes um, the levels that are tested for sort of vacillate pretty rapidly, swing back and forth uh, in the early stages of an infection. So he tested positive and then had two negatives. That permitted him to play on Saturday. He didn't even take the warm-up awaiting the, the test result. And then finally, uh, on Sunday, he tested positive a bunch of times. And, and, you know, now he'll stay in Washington for five days and we'll see what happens crossing the border because, you know, the fact is, is that entry, like the border guards have a ton of, um, I'm trying to find the word, but discretion to latitude. Yeah. Yeah. Discretion to, you know, impose harsher, 
uh, quarantine lengths on on players re-entering. And, you know, Brock Besser. American versus Canadian. Yep. Yep. Well, Brian, Brock Besser got unlucky. And, um, you know, the the fact is, is that it's possible that Halak and Garland do too. And, and as much as you can prep and get everything ready and, you know, have a have a good go, uh, it's still up to who you get on the day when you're crossing. And, you know, hopefully for the Canucks, they won't be without Garland and Halak for an, a stretch that lasts beyond this road trip, but it's possible that they are. And that's uh, that's an uncomfortable spot to be in. It's a real disadvantage for Canadian teams. We are going to see American teams in similar circumstances not even bring recent positives up across the border to, to play in Canada for similar reasons. Like, we're going to see that too, so it's not just Canadian teams that are impacted. But, you know, there's a growing sense among players that the consequences of a positive test, um, you know, sort of outweigh the the health risks, right? four players, especially when they deal with what guys like Besser dealt with. Um, you've, you've had situations on teams with, with teams where like a guy has the flu and is genuinely vomiting, um, but is basically free to go anywhere. <laughs> and and uh, asymptomatic players who are positive for COVID are, are locked in their rooms, essentially. It's, uh, it's a very interesting moment, a very uncertain moment. There's a ton of complexity in roster management as a result. And you know, it, it does put Canadian teams, especially when they're traveling in the States, because you're at higher risk of uh, outbreaks within a, within a team environment on the road, um, because crossing the border is complicated. Like, it does put Canadian teams at a significant disadvantage. And, you know, I, I don't know if you heard JT Miller's answer to COVID management on the Donnie and Dolly show last week, but, you know, the way that the United States has decided to manage the virus, which is, you know, to not. And the way Canada has, which is, you know, to sort of go halfway, um, certainly versus what uh, some of the countries we see in like Asia and Oceania are, are doing, um, you know, that that is going to impact player recruitment. It's going to impact free agent decisions. In fact, it already has. We've already seen players cite COVID as, as a partial reason for returning to the States rather than coming to Canada. I think about Zach Bogosian, who the Canucks just played a couple days ago. Um, so... You know, it's a it's a it's a really tough thing for the Canucks to manage overall, and um, we'll just have to hope that the players that have tested positive now are, first of all, uh, asymptomatic or only mildly symptomatic. That there's no impact on player health or performance, and and b that they're able to get across the border and uh, return to the team, uh, you know, in an appropriate timeline, and not have sort of the um, Kafka esque legal issues that uh that Besser and company dealt with because you know that was that was wild I mean they were basically on ice for 15 days it makes no sense no it doesn't and you know when you look at what they're dealing with with Garland it, it probably is a group that can manage it right now because the Canucks are ridiculously healthy I mean you know when you when you look at it once they've once they got those guys back in the building like who are they missing Travis Hamanick right like this team is ridiculously healthy right now yeah they've been fortunate on the on the health front this season and What's it got them, right? I mean, that's, that's um, you know, context that you need to keep in mind when evaluating what and who this team is, right? Well, we were told that Brandon Sutter was the reason why the penalty kill was struggling. That's, well, and, there, and you know what? That's not without cause. That's not without cause, right? It's ridiculous. Uh, it's ridiculous that well, they were that bad, and that was the reason. That's ridiculous. Well, no, but, I mean, they do miss having a righty draw guy who can kill penalties on their roster. Like, they need that. Bad, well, bad. They, but they... They had a they had a lot of time to prepare for that. They just kind of didn't. Yeah, I mean, you're right. There were options in on the waiver wire, even who could have helped address that. Uh, Dylan Gambrell or uh, uh, Sam Carrick. You know, there were there were options to address it, and I guess they thought they could get through, and they could they they couldn't. And and the penalty kill is still an issue, right? Like the penalty kill is still this team's biggest weakness, in my view. Surrendered five goals against on four in four games. Um, it's a big reason why they only have one win uh, on this road trip, despite on form at five on five, having played pretty well. Let's uh, let's talk a bit about the the fourth line slash third line, because I think based on deployment, Highmore, Lamico and Mott. Second line based they, on deployment. Well, yeah, no, fair they're, enough. They're I mean, playing they, a ton right now. They are up there in the lineup. They're playing they're being well overplayed, to be honest with you. Like they're being overplayed of late. What's going well, though? 
other than the fact they're they were pp2 the other night in the third period what's going well for the canucks fourth line yeah like why does it work i mean we you know I mean, they look fast right the canucks fourth line in years has just been a collection of garbage right it's been it, it's it's been leftovers it's been a fourth line that does nothing that a fourth line should well we need them to be energy guys and they were they were never that like you know for years like all of a sudden this looks like a dangerous fourth line this could be a good fourth line on a good team and yes i know they're being elevated to, to, to third line status but it's it's a group that's got it rolling right now and, and it just seems like they've got all the the right pieces for what it should look like yeah i mean Here's what's going right for them, though, Farhan, right? They're they're shooting at about 12% when they're on the ice, right? And they're getting 950, 930, 940, 945, 950 goaltending. Um, you know, their PDO, Highmore's PDO is 108.5 on this road trip. Lamico's is the low, he's the low man of the three at 105.8. So uh, there's some good fortune here. Yeah, and uh, of course being, he's not been kind to Mott. No, the shot attempt differential has been unkind to all of them, right? They're they're being out attempted by a significant margin with those three on the ice. But but they're out shooting their opposition 25-16 with Lamico on the ice, 26-20 with um Mott on the ice, and 23-22 with Highmore on the ice at five on five on this road trip, and they're outscoring their opposition three to one. And the expected goals numbers look much better than the Corsi four numbers. To this point, so in terms of the quality they're surrendering, it's low. They're blocking a lot of shots, or their opponents are missing the net a fair bit. And, you know, yeah, I mean, really, really, it is that they're blocking a fair bit of shots. Like, with Lamico on the ice, they've blocked 16 of the, you know, um, 16 of the 82 attempts that have been on the ice. That's like 15%. That's really good. That's a high number of attempts blocked with Lamico on the ice. Similar similar sort of ratio for Mott and Highmore. So looks to me like, and, and this matches the eye test, they're keeping teams to the outside. Um, they're controlling the quality of looks and they're getting a fair few good bounces. Um, but they're still playing too much, right? Like on this road trip at five on five, you know, Yuho Lamico's played more than Bo Horvat. Um, wow. Tyler Mott's played more than Elias Pettersson. Matthew Highmore's played more than Pod Colson and Hoaglander. Um, don't love that. Like, I just don't love that at the no. end of the day. And, uh, yeah, and there's, no, suspect, there's no context or scenario where that should be a regular feature. Especially when you spent as much time trailing. I know it's going well for them, and I think that's probably the thinking behind it, but they are being overplayed, and they're, they're playing well, so I understand it, but, you know... Uh, could be a product of the schedule too, right? And and just trying to take some pressure off some of those guys, big picture. Sure, but I mean, I, I it's still worth pointing out that I don't think that's the optimal way for this lineup to be used, and uh, and we'll see how it uh, we'll see how it develops here. We'll see how it evolves, but certainly I think their speed has given opponents trouble. I think uh, I think Highmore and Mott have you know a little bit of skill to to finish um, against the grain, especially and. You know, I think uh, I think it's working. I think they're more than the sum of their parts for for a bunch of fit reasons. Um, you know, they played hard hockey. They played well, and I think they've given the Canucks a, a good, like, sort of gritty speed dimension at the bottom end of the lineup. And against some of the slower teams they faced on this road trip, especially Washington and Tampa Bay, um, you know, I don't think it mattered as much against Carolina and Florida, but against those teams that maybe were like more size reliant and less speed reliant. I think they gave the Canucks a, a pretty significant edge in the bottom six because of the way they're able to attack against the grain and in transition and what they're able to do off the cycle and the way they're able to buzz around and disrupt plays uh, on defense. Like I thought they, I think they played really well. So, um, you know, be I, again, I, it's the usage though that I'm interested to see. Like I don't really understand both Mott and Lamico getting, what I'd call top six minutes on this road trip, but that's sort of how they've been used to this point. They moved around how they used the pairings as well. We saw a little bit of Pullman and Hughes and, and Shen and Burroughs on the bottom end. Um, what do you make of, of what we're seeing from D, from the D as a whole? Obviously, Hughes, we, we know what we're getting there, and he's playing exceptional hockey right now, uh, regardless of who he's playing with. But, um, you know, collectively as a group, Boudreaux talked about how he needs more in the way of puck movements. He's looking for more offense from the back end. 
Um, are we surprised that it, the numbers for guys like OEL and Myers are as low as they are? Collectively, where's the group? Um, in terms of ice time, what do, what do you mean? Oh, the offensive numbers. Well, just g- their general form, offensively specifically to start with, but you know, even how they're defending and, and how they're you know, how they're being deployed together. Yeah, well, I think this has been sort of the Tyler Myers uh, come back to earth road trip, right? Yeah. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I I would agree. Totally. Canucks have been outscored by three with him on the ice, uh, not getting much in the way of bounces offensively. A few uh, chaos moments in his own end. Yep. Um, You know, but I think, look, we did this big breakdown at The Athletic today. So I'm going to bring it back to your favorite topic. Uh, You know how to get a thousand yards as a running back, you need to get the majority of touches in a backfield. Yeah. You know how like Melvin Gordon's never going to get to a hundred so long as, or a thousand yards so long as he's splitting with Javante Smith. But if you put him on a team where he was the number one guy, he would for sure be like a 1200 yard guy. Yep. Okay. So it's similar with defensemen, right? You need to play PP one to be a 40 point guy for the most part. You know, you can still be a 40 point guy without PP one time. If you're like Mackenzie Weger. And you play top pairing minutes for one of the best offensive teams in, in hockey. Uh, same goes for like a Devon Taves or a Sam Girard. But it's like those are the exceptions to the rule. Um, you have to really play on a high octane team if you're going to be a 40 point guy without significant PP one time. Uh, like if you're not going to be the cowbell offensive defender, your sort of points expectation should be something more like 25 points as opposed to 40. But we sort of think of 40 points as like a good offensive defenseman, right? Um, we need to sort of relax that and look at it usage-wise. Now, the Canucks have talked a lot about how they need more speed, more production from the back end, right? And we've talked a lot about how offense, like the offense isn't just on the forwards, the defense defending isn't just on the defenders. And and while the Canucks blue line has contributed well defensively this season, right? The, the team has outperformed defensive expectations i think most of the defenders like go down the list i think ekman larson's had a better season than was expected going in i think tyler myers performed above the level we'd have thought uh luke shen uh quinn hughes even tucker pullman's had really good defensive impacts right despite uh, a slow start and and the fact that i really don't want to see him with quinn hughes ever and and you know enough of that please um despite all of that i think as a group they've all had decent seasons and yet you know, I broke it down at the athletic and in terms of points from defensemen, the Canucks have 64, 64 points from their defensemen this season. Only Montreal, Ottawa, Arizona, and the New York Islanders have fewer. That's not really where you want to be, right? No. And and of those 64 points, 30 of them, right, belong to Quinn Hughes. Now that's important because as we talked about, or as I talked about there, right? Your cowbell PP1 offensive defender, like those are usage-based, that's usage-based production. So if we exclude the highest scoring defender from each team, right? Exclude the highest scoring defender from each team, that leaves us with 34 points in the Canucks' case. And if we do it across the league, only Arizona, Ottawa, and the New York Islanders have fewer overall points from defensemen. Um, you know, defensemen two through six, basically, than the Canucks do, right? And so when Bruce Boudreau talks about needing more of a dynamic push from defensemen, right? When this team, when you look at how the Canucks have struggled to generate scoring chances in offense, when you just watch, like just watch Tampa Bay and you see Mikhail Sergachev is is taking some of their most dangerous scoring chances and Victor Hedman's not just supporting the cycle, he's helping drive it. And even Yan Ruda's getting in on the forecheck, right? And then you see Florida and how they attack as a five-man unit and take fourth man's ice and attack in waves and cycle the puck uh, with defenders contributing significantly to the buildup. And, and you see how Carolina's back-end speed feeds their overall like edge attacking game and their vertical attack and their, and their you know, ability to escape and at least go, go high flip, um, punt and hunt in the neutral zone. And then you see with Washington how much they miss John Carlson, right? Like how much his absence was felt. On Sunday, like this road trip's been a really good window into the importance of having fast attacking defensemen. And I think the gulf between how those teams play and the Canucks play has been really wide. Um, they need more like they, they can't just have Quinn Hughes and a bunch of guys. You need to have 
a bunch of attacking talent on the blue line. Um, you know, which sort of brings us to the like, well, Jack Rathbone will be back soon talking point, and that's true, that'll help. But it's a it's a partial answer, right? Like it's a it's it's a sort of step in the right direction with a young player who's still just figuring out this league, as opposed to a solution to a problem that is that the Canucks blue line is composed of too many guys that are kind of the same player, right? Like that are like Luke Shen, Tucker Pullman, Travis Hamanick. Not a lot of daylight there. They're kind of the same guy. It's the Sea of Grandland on the back end. Well, it's the pool of man. Oh, and, very good. And and they're all but they're, truthfully, they're all five through seven guys. Like they should be five through they're seven. They're the same guys. guy. They're the right? same guy. Yeah, but but they're all being because they have so many of them, they're all being elevated up the lineup. Well, at least one of them is always playing in the top four. And, you know, the, I mean, you put Ekman Larson and Tyler Myers together and we've seen it like the defensive results have been decent, but they're both like Tyler Myers is a secondary puck mover at this point. Um, Oliver Ekman Larson, I don't know that he's got the attacking verve like he's got the skill and he's been unlucky to offensively like he should probably be at something more like 10 or 12 points. But you know, I don't think he's a dynamic attacking defender anymore. Um, and that's fine. He's been elite defensively, so I'm not going to complain too much about it. But, you know, I, this team needs more attacking push from the back end. They need more um, ability to hit their forwards in stride in transition. Like a big part of this team's offensive struggles, in my view anyway, are the contributions from the back end, not just in terms of point scoring, although that's how I summarized it in uh, in our you know, nine thoughts from the road trip article at the athletic this week, but also, you know, in terms of just supporting that push, giving some nitrous to the Canucks, uh, engine overall, uh, that to me is something like you, you, if we talk about what we've learned, right? Like if we talk about what we've learned from this road trip, right? I do think there's, there's been a pretty evident gap as the Canucks have lined up against a lead opponent and then another elite opponent and then another elite opponent. Like one thing that's really stood out to me and that I think is a durable takeaway and, and that is a durable takeaway in part because I don't think it should be a surprise to anybody who's paid attention to this team, but the Canucks need a fundamental rethink about what their blue line is and what it can do if they're going to join the company of the elite teams in the NHL. And, and for me, that was just this, this whole week has been an exhibition in that. We'll dive more into that when we come back. One more break. So, Drancer, you know, certainly that's a big picture topic for Jim Rutherford to address, and it's something that might get touched on by clearing space at the deadline, but I don't think you can fundamentally alter it there. That's an off-season project and really a project over a couple of seasons. But you touched on Jack Rathbone in the short term. What's the latest on him, uh, injury status, and and what the club is thinking in terms of getting him up here? Yeah, you know, I'm not exactly sure what the latest is on his status, but I believe that he's getting close, and I believe that we'll see him at some point relatively quickly. Although, you know, I think Brad Hunt's played relatively well on this trip. Um, Canucks are even with him on the ice five on five, and he's been productive. Um, you know, he played in the American League yesterday, so that's a that's a good sign overall. Um, scored right, like he scored a goal. Uh, he looked like Jack Rathbone, <laughs> like he's really good. He's a really good player, and you know, I, I wouldn't be stunned to see him back with the team when they return to Vancouver, uh, or at least get a shot, particularly if he continues to play well. Um, you know, continues to beat goaltenders with a big one-timer and, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see where he's at, uh, in terms of what the Canucks plan to do. I, I do think that they'd bring him up to get him in the lineup, um, quickly. I think they know they need what he brings. So I would expect him. Yeah. You know what? I would bet, I would bet we see him this week. I bet we see him play a game this week for the Canucks and he should, they need him like they need what he has. They don't have enough of it. He he literally addresses one of this team's biggest issues, which is just a lack of dynamic talent on the back end. So, yeah, let's see it. And with all due respect to Brad Hunt, like, you know, Brad Hunt's a, maybe a different player, but in terms of, you know, overall impact, he's not much different than the pools of man. Or, you know, they, they need somebody who's got that upside and somebody that could be an important part of this organization's future. There's no reason why they can't look at him now. Yeah, I you know I mean I will say though like I know people were all over Brad Hunt for the hit on Svechnikov that Svechnikov broke like Derrick Henry on skates, but uh, a lot of running back talk on this podcast, Love and we'll it. get to our NFL picks shortly. But 
you know, he's played 40 minutes on this road trip, right? He's played 40 minutes on this road trip. In those minutes, the Canucks have outshot their opponents by um, uh, 34 to 16. So that's by 18 shots. Uh, he's even, but he leads all Canucks skaters by expected goals. Like, Brad Hunt's not the answer. Don't get me wrong. But he's the type of player they need more of. Then play, right? both, Which, then play them both, right? Like, it doesn't yeah, yeah. matter to me. Play them both. But I, I don't I don't disagree with you. Like I and and this goes back to like I want to see, you know, we keep we keep shuttling in five, six, seven guys on a on a pair with Quinn Hughes. Like, show me Quinn Hughes with Ekman Larson. Show me Hughes on the right side. I've I've called for this a couple times because I think the Canucks need to see it. Like I just think it's something you need to see. Um in in my view anyway. Because if you if you have Quinn Hughes on the right side, then you don't need a top pair right-handed defenseman. And that would make life so much easier for you from a, from a how do we get competitive fast perspective. Like your best option is that Hughes is your answer to Shea Theodore. Um, so, you know, I'd love to see it. And, and then you could play Hunt with Pullman on the third pair. I've kind of liked that fit and try Rathbone with Myers. I don't know that they'd have the confidence to do that. And I think it would leave their penalty kill a little bit exposed, although Hughes has done a pretty good job four on five. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that that would probably be something I'd, I'd want to look at. Maybe Shen Hunt instead of Pullman Hunt. But, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know that we will. Like, I just don't know that we're going to see that. What else have we learned through four games on this trip? For me, the one thing I've learned is the Canucks are no longer a fragile team because mm. this would have continued to spiral. It would have. You yep. can tell in their body language. You could just tell by their reaction to one goal against. This would have continued to spiral. But the fact that they could make a knot at the end of the rope and, and not just hang on, but really excel after three dispiriting losses where basically the, the world says you're not as good as these teams. You've now come back down to earth. Enough of your little nine-game run and your Boudreaux bump. And for them to to play the way they did, because it wasn't a game where they completely relied on the goaltender as good as he no. was, right? They were the better team for 60 minutes against the Washington Capitals with both teams in the second end of back-to-backs. They showed a word I didn't, I had not used when it came to this team for quite some time, certainly not this year uh, and not last year, and that's resiliency. Yeah. Hey, that's a good one. I like that takeaway. Um, yeah. I think you're right. I think that's uh, I think that's a fair point, and and you know it sort of feeds the other thing that I that I want to note, which is that when you look globally at these four games, right, there's two tracks by which you have to evaluate this team, right? There's the results track, which is can they make the playoffs, and you know what I think about that. I I've thought that's you know an extreme long shot for a long time, and that anyone saying like they're two points out, they're four points out, like you know, not counting games in hand or looking so at point negative. percentage. No, I just, I think that's just real. Like, no, it is. The, the numbers the are the NH- numbers, right? Like, the numbers look. are the numbers. The NHL, the NHL standings are artificially compressed. And to take like stock of it as if the, the other stuff doesn't matter is just dishonest. Like, I just find it n- n- so annoying. Um, it, it's just, just because it's just because it's a lie. It's like a kind lie. And I'm not going to do that to our audience. Uh, but the, but the by that track, this road trip hasn't been good enough. They needed more because when you fall as far behind as the Canucks did, you always need to be gaining if you're gonna if you're gonna pull off the unlikely. Um, but from the second track, which is what is this team, right? What is this team, and what needs to happen to get them on the right track? Like this was the type of road trip performance wise, especially five on five, that you know I think points to more muted moves, like that points to a team that maybe is not as far away as their perch in the standings look. Um, you know, even when you adjust for the impact of score effects, and it has to be noted that the Canucks have trailed throughout this trip, like, the Canucks have, like, a 55% share controlling expected goals against a who's who of the best of the best uh, to, to steal uh, Bruce Boudreauxism. Um, that's great. That's great. I, I actually have liked an awful lot of what I've seen from this team, especially five-on-five five, over the course of this road trip. I think they've performed really well and and probably complicated uh G- jim rutherford's overall well not probably complicated but they should have performed at a level where you know maybe the thought process behind what has to happen is more about changing up the mix with the bottom six forward group as opposed to changing up 
the core, right? More about rebuilding the blue line to be faster and, and more uh, dynamic as opposed to, you know, uh, taking a significant step back to, to clear out cap flexibility and amass draft picks. And, and that matters to me. Like, that's, for me, the biggest story is we tick toward March 21st. Um, I think the Canucks have given their new president of hockey operations a fair bit to chew on uh, by just sort of performing really well from a from a results independent viewpoint over the course of this trip against you know a lot of elite teams before we get to our football picks uh, i want to ask you really quickly your your take on the impact of yarrow halak's protocol on what happens next with him because if he plays two more games his bonus kicks in and, and that's that we expected one to be this past week and now we've got back-to-backs on the 31st and 1st of this month scheduled. And then there really is no schedule for February because of the Olympic break. So we don't know what that's going to look like. But they'll so, have back-to-backs in there. For sure they have will. To. For, for sure they will. But I'm just saying they don't yet. So uh, assuming that he's back and available for the 31st and 1st back-to-back there, uh, what do you make of what's just happened and, and how that's going to impact what could happen? I, I suspect it won't. Um, you know, my, 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 I, I suspect that the Canucks will just play Halak if they need to. Um, that's my that's that's what I assume uh, they're thinking. I don't know that. Um, and then and then we'll see what goes next. I mean, a lot of a lot of scuttlebutt from the National Insiders that the Canucks will consider making that move. But uh, Halak has a full no move clause. Uh, he negotiated hard for it. Uh, we'll see. Like we'll see. Uh, that this is a situation that we'll track, but. Um, I don't really have a good sense of which way it goes. Uh, although I do think that, you know, a team with the type of long shot bid to make the playoffs that the Canucks have at the moment uh, would be wise to be deeply protective of whatever cap flexibility they can carve out. Meanwhile, um, we we do know what we're thinking in terms of tonight's football game. We've got the Arizona Cardinals. Both of us have picked the Cardinals to beat the Rams, uh, even though the Rams are my Super Bowl pick at the start of the year. We were five for five. Now we can't make next week's picks until Wednesday because we still have a game tonight, so we're not sure of the matchups. But should we take a collective pat on the back, or was it just not that tough of a week to pick outside of the San Francisco-Dallas game where we both uh, picked San Fran? I think we should give ourselves a pat on the back. Five for five is pretty good, right? Yeah, I mean, especially you- with you at halftime of Kelsey. <laughs> so first of all we will de- we will definitely make nfl picks throughout the playoffs now that we've had success doing it because everyone knows how much i like to be right right so right. i really enjoyed this <laughs> um as for kelsey travis kelsey was on my fantasy team i overdrafted him obviously right all analytics guys love travis kelsey in fantasy football right like they they just, just do because it's hard to get production his 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 uh, value over replacement is through the roof. So I overdrafted him. Obviously, he didn't have the greatest fantasy season, but he's still t- t- tight end one. And uh, that so that touchdown that he scored on the last offensive snap of the uh, second quarter last night that hit that allowed the uh, Chiefs to hit the um, alternative uh, alternate spread halftime. Um, yeah, the alternate spread at halftime, which was set at 11.5. And after that fumble, I was sure that I'd lost this bet. I had a lot of money on the Chiefs going up big early against the Steelers. And that Kelsey touchdown paid it off. And I was celebrating like crazy in my living room, man. Like that was like as excited as I've been watching a sports game in an awful long time. What a beauty. What a beauty the Chiefs are. I'm, I can't wait for that Chiefs-Bills matchup, man. That's going to be so much fun. Uh, Wallace must have been looking at you like you're, you were a little bit different. No, no. He's he's a big Mahomes guy. He was. I, uh... <laughs> I'm, a big, I'm a big Mahomes guy, much like Wallace, too. And, and i got to be honest. like The fact that people were adding me and giving me grief because in the morning after... Or after the um, after the Bills won their game, I basically said, "Boy, Bills and Chiefs are going to be epic." And they're like, "What do you mean? They haven't even played the Steelers yet!" Like that was even a thing. The fact that they even teased yeah. people with a scoreless first quarter, like anybody thought that was even a thing. Come <laughs> on! I, I mean, the Chiefs were just like the the Chiefs outclassed them so significantly. Which yeah, but who couldn't see that coming? Right? Like that was that was going to happen. Uh, it. There was no chance. There was no path to victory outside no, of a Mahomes none. outside of a Mahomes injury, and even then, it would have been debatable. There was no path to victory for the Pittsburgh Steelers. <laughs> Chad, anytime, baby. Let's I'm go. In. Let's hey, go. Um, but uh, I, I really enjoyed seeing all the Cowboy fans in my life oh. just die. I just <laughs> loved it. You, you know, it was so predictable. 
if we could ever generate electricity by crowd shots of crying cowboys fans, right? We would uh we would sit we would stop global warming. Your friend like, your your good friend and mine, Pierre Lebrun, uh, who poor guy. officially No, it's not even poor guy. Like he is the biggest Cowboys fan I know outside of Dallas and maybe even inside of Dallas. And when it was over, he was he was he, I'm not going to tell you what he compared it to, but it was big. But then after he said, I still love this team even more. Like, yeah. It's just, I mean, it's, it's truly a Dak, sickness. Dak Prescott getting tackled by the umpire. He forgot to hand the ball to. Um, yeah. Stop giving that, me excuses. Cause that was the right decision that he was not behind the play. They weren't even set. If you look at when, if you look at when that collision happened, he also it, made it fast. Like it's not like uh, he was some bum. Like he made it as fast as he could. Like what, what's he going to do? Yeah. It, it, but they but weren't even, still, they weren't the even fact, set. The fact that he legit like tackled Dak and there's this moment where you're like, what? What's going on? Like they can't end the game like that. Um, Just the best. I loved every yeah. second of it. No, it was me so too. good. That was the best dumb football game I've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. Jimmy tried to give it back. But uh, and I, I think their luck will run out next week in Lambeau. But it was fun watching him knock off the Cowboys. Uh, looking forward to the Cardinals beating the Rams tonight. The Canucks tomorrow. And then a van cast from us on Wednesday. We will be back then, and uh, until then, we'll see what the Canucks can uh, what the Canucks can come up with if they can build on that Washington win. Meanwhile, our friend Pierre LeBrun, biggest Dallas Cowboy fan we know, he joins Craig Custance and Sean Gentilly this week on the Athletic Hockey Show USA to talk Dak Prescott to talk <laughs> Dak Prescott and, and Ezekiel Elliott and how to poorly build a team by overpaying a running back. Um, <laughs> and Mike and, McCarthy. Oh, he, did he, does he also discuss pre-snap flags? Oh, how about how about random penalties. random neck or backbreaking holding penalties? Oh. Is he going to discuss that? Defensive, let's go. Let's go with that. When a defensive lineman tackles an offensive lineman. Oh, oh my goodness. Um, uh, a, a one one quick thing on Nashville. Let's let's talk about this really quickly. Kay. UC Soros, incredible, yeah. right? Predators, kind of like the Canucks, really reliant on one puck-moving defenseman, right? Mm -hmm. uh, aside from that, not a ton of thrust from their back end. Um, I, I kind of view the Predators as a goaltending-based pretender. I don't think they're as good as their uh, perch in the standings would indicate. Them and the New York Rangers are kind of the teams that profile that way for me. Uh, but, but, um, also playing the second uh, leg of back-to-back -back games against the Canucks. Even though they're at home and the Canucks are at the end of a tough road trip, the Canucks are going to be a rested team here. They have a real shot. They have a real shot to come back having gone two and three on what has to be their toughest road trip of the season. It it's going to be interesting. Like I, I like the way it's stacking up for the and Canucks. If, and if they leave with four points, wow, that'd be a big win given the way this Huge. thing started. Huge. Thanks to all the VIPs for listening to the VanCast. Please follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Do not forget to leave a rating and a review. And right now, you can get an annual subscription to The Athletic for just $3.99 a month when you visit theathletic.com slash VanCast. Again, we will be back on Wednesday. NFL picks in hand.